Good morning. If you brought a Bible, let's open it up to the Gospel of Luke. In the New Testament, it's the third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. You know, the reason that God's Word is a firm foundation that we can trust that it won't change is because God who spoke it is firm. He's eternal. As we were singing that first verse, I was picturing the back wall in our sanctuary over the sound booth that still says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we can say that his word is firm and trustworthy and we can anchor our lives to its promises when our lives feel very uncertain. This has been yet another week to just remind us how uncertain the factors of our lives are. We need something certain. So as we go to God's word, let me pray that the Lord would help anchor our hearts there. Lord, uh, the book of Hebrews says that because Jesus died and rose again and has ascended to the Father, uh, we have an advocate at your right hand in heaven, in the very place that we hope for beyond the day of our death. And Hebrews says that it's like an anchor, a steadfast anchor that we have in heaven, Jesus Christ. This morning, I pray that you would help us have a greater sense and awareness of the firmness of that anchor, the security of that anchor, as we look to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Help us take the word that we hear this morning and, and, and bring it to life in the way that we live and think. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a little ADD. It's hard to pray when the drag race is going right by. <laughs> I think I finished that with a coherent thought. Wow. Lord bless you. Well, man, it struck me this week as I've been in these opening four verses of the Gospel of Luke, the contrast uh, to the days that we're living in. We are living in days, that I don't need to tell you, where public trust of news has eroded and been compromised. It's been about a decade uh, uh, with the term fake news as a buzzword, and we've grown, I think, understandably very suspicious and skeptical of news. Fact checkers are a thing these days, constantly with the 24-7 news cycle checking the facts on the stories that are constantly being pumped out to us as news. And we, I think, unfortunately, are probably growing more and more skeptical of news and suspicious, wary of it. And it struck me that here we come now in these days still as Christians, as the church, claiming that we have good news for, of great joy that's for all people. It's not just good news for some whose tastes line up with ours or some who prefer or see things our way, but this bold, audacious, universal claim that we believe in the Bible, we have good news of great joy for all people. And our good news comes with some pretty staggering claims that we believe Starting with this, we have the audacity to claim that there is only one God, eternal, holy. He made everything. Before uh, anything was made, he existed forever. And that includes us as his creation, which means we are subject to him, whether we think so or not, that we answer to a God. He has authority over us. He made us. He has the right to tell us who we are and why he made us and what is good for us and what's not. 
And we claim that we have all, every last one of us, failed to honor or give the glory that is due that God with our lives. We claim that because of this, we have all incurred guilt before this God. That this holy, just God rightfully is wrathful toward our sin and it ought to be judged. We claim that this sin must be reconciled somehow. It must be paid for or atoned for if we are ever to have peace and fellowship again with God. We also claim that this God is not just holy and just and feels just wrath towards sin, but he is unbelievably loving and gracious and merciful. And because he is so, even before the foundations of the world, his plan was to redeem us who have rebelled against us. And he did so in Jesus by emptying himself, humbling himself, we, have, we claim that this Jesus, God the Son, took on a real human nature and he walked the earth as a Jewish man. He taught things that blew people's minds. He backed those teachings up with signs and wonders that people could not explain that attested to his identity. And despite all of that goodness that was shown in Jesus, we rejected him. And we crucified him. And he was buried in a tomb and sealed and people saw it and he walked out again. He rose and was witnessed by over 500 people and he ascended bodily into heaven. And we also claim as Christians that while it was people, men, who put him on the cross, it was actually God's will, God's purpose that Jesus would bear our guilt at the cross, the most evil thing that we have ever done, God planned for our good. This might sound like the end of the sermon at the beginning, but this is what we claim as Christians to be the good news of great joy for all people. And I realize even as I say it that maybe for you that sounds like fake news. That just sounds preposterous. How could these things be? Maybe even you who believe these things would admit, like I would have to admit that on some days and seasons, we can doubt this. We can second guess this and wonder, really God? But Luke in the beginning of his gospel here makes it crystal clear, right out of the gate, this is not fake news. These things are true. It can't be good news of great joy for all people if it's not true news. And Luke really at the beginning wants to assure us that these things, these stories are true. So before we look at these opening verses, who was Luke? Just a brief sketch here. We don't get many details about Luke in the Bible, but three times Paul in his letters mentions Luke. He was a contemporary of Paul and a companion at times with Paul. In Colossians 4, 14, he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Written at the same time as Colossians, his letter to Philemon mentions Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sending greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And in 2 Timothy 4, which is likely the, the last letter of Paul that we have as he was under arrest waiting to find out if he was going to receive the sentence of death, 
he writes this sobering sentence in 2 Timothy 4, Luke alone is with me. So what do we learn? Well, he's a medical doctor. That means he's an educated man. He's, he's smart. He's, he's competent to undertake the sort of work that he undertook, this massive two-volume recounting of the life, death, ministry, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and then in the book of Acts, which even though they're separated in our New Testament as distinct books, are two parts of the same work, which continues to chronicle the spread of the early church after Jesus ascended. But he's, he's an educated man who has written this. But we also learn he's a believer, he was a fellow companion and ministry partner at, on occasions with Paul. And he was beloved by Paul. And he was faithful and stood by Paul even at some of Paul's darkest moments. So how do we know Luke's the author? If these are the only three times he's mentioned. You know, he's not, his name's not mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. I know at the beginning of the book of Luke in your Bible, it probably has a title like the Gospel according to Luke. But Luke didn't write that title. Early Christians, in, in, in this, even in the second century, we have manuscripts going very far back ascribing this Gospel to this man, Luke, the beloved physician. And there's, there's good reason to, to not doubt that, that he is the one who undertook this uh, writing of this account. And in fact, it fits as we get into Acts, Acts 16, all of a sudden the language switches to we language. And many of the sections in the second half of Acts are spoken about as if the author was there present with Paul and these others because he was. So Luke was in a privileged place and time and he, he must have realized it. Um, I don't know if any of you have been watching that show, The Chosen, they just started the second season of it and Bessie and I this week went and watched the first episode and in the opening scenes, all these different eyewitnesses of Jesus are being interviewed by someone and I was like, oh my gosh, this is Luke, this is amazing. And then it was John. But still, it, it, it was incredible to watch them sort of try to depict in, a, in scenes uh, these people sitting in a room with Mary, the mother, the mother of Jesus or the different disciples as they recounted these things that they saw and heard and touched. And it, and it blew my mind again that in the Gospel of Luke, we are one degree of separation from eyewitnesses of Jesus. It's amazing what a gift this is to us. So let's look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. Because he begins his gospel in a way that the other three gospels don't. He starts with four verses before he dives into the story. He front loads a little prologue that explains to his, his immediate audience, Theophilus, and, and all those who Theophilus will hopefully share this with, what he's written, how he's written it, and why he's written it, most importantly. What is the fruit that Luke has poured all this labor and research and investigation into, hoping to bear in the lives of those who read it? So let's look. Luke 1, 1 through 4. In as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Number one, what exactly has he written? Well, verse one, 
he essentially says he's, he is set out to write theological history. That's not his word, but that's how I would describe what he's written. It's theological history. First of all, it's history. He says it's a narrative. He said many others have um, compiled narratives, and he puts himself, he says, it seemed good to me also to compile a narrative. So this is a recounting of historical events. This is a retelling of things that happened. You know, if you flip over to the beginning of Acts, which is the second half volume of this massive work, as he starts the second half, he actually clarifies what he had just recounted in the first half. He says, in the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So that's what this narrative is about. This, this volume one is all about Jesus. It's what he did. It's what he taught. And it's who he is. So it's historical, but it is not mere history. It's, it's theological history. Notice it says, he, it's a narrative of things that have been accomplished or fulfilled if you're reading the NIV. It's not just a recording or a narrative of things that happened. This isn't just a collection of interesting stories about Jesus for our amusement. Oh, that's interesting. But it's recounting of things that have been accomplished. Accomplished implies purpose that has been brought about or completed. Whose purposes? Well, God's purposes. It's a narrative that believes that these things that Jesus taught, these things that Jesus did, these things that happened to Jesus fulfilled something. They fulfilled promises and purposes of God that he had had and been prophesying and preaching ahead of time for centuries. Luke wants us to understand in this gospel that these events were divine affairs. These events were God working out his plans in, in human history and time and space. It struck me that Luke, in this massive 24-chapter gospel, unfolds in great detail what the beginning of the book of Hebrews just summarizes for us. Listen to this from Hebrews 1. It says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. So, first of all, in Jesus' coming, God is speaking to us, so we should listen to what Jesus says. It says also about Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's who this son of God is who came to earth. And then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Luke's gonna take a little time to help us understand how that all went down. Making purification for sins is a very shorthand way of describing all that Jesus did in his first coming to remove the guilt that is on us because of our sin and atone for it at the cross. Before going to the cross, living an impeccable, sinless life, fulfilling perfectly God's righteous law, his standards that we've all failed miserably to uphold. And the sitting down at the right hand of the majesty, just speaking of Jesus' ascension, is a, is a word about the completion of Jesus' redeeming work. I was thinking, we sing every Easter, Christ the Lord is risen today and has a line. Christ, uh, redeeming work is done, alleluia. 
So this is not just a recounting of what Jesus said and did. It's also a recounting of why Jesus said and did these things and what Jesus saying and doing of these things has accomplished or brought about. And even maybe most importantly for us, what these accomplishments have to do with us in 2021 sitting in a parking lot in La Mirada. Because as Luke says, the angels declared, it's good news of great joy for all people. So that means us. It's history that demands a response. It's not history just for our entertainment value. If Jesus isn't fake news and he really taught these things and the claims he made of his identity are true and the things that he did that blew people's minds really happened and he really did walk out of the grave, then he's not someone to be ignored. He demands our worship our love, our, thank, our, our gra- gratitude, our allegiance, and our complete trusting obedience. I was reminded, Emmanuel Nashville Church, I love this part of their mission statement that they recount regularly. They say, we exist, or we want to make the real Jesus non-ignorable in our city and far beyond. I love that. We want Jesus to be non-ignorable because he's worthy of it. And we we ignore Jesus to our eternal detriment. That's what Luke aimed to do with this narrative, to recount things that happened that are a matter of life and death for all people. So how did he do it? How did he go about this? Look at the next verses. It was a group effort. There's sort of three groups. Group one, he says, there are those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He was living in a generation where many who had seen Jesus with their eyeballs were around and could be talked to and interviewed. And you could hear their testimony of what they saw and heard. First, this surely referred to the 12 apostles who had been Jesus' disciples, 11 of whom had been his disciples, and the 12th had also followed along and was appointed later after Judas betrayed him. But these 12 in Acts 1... This was the requirement for the 12. It was those who had accompanied them during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up. And it was one of those men who would become a witness to the resurrection. That was a requirement as they filled Judas's empty office, that 12th. But surely Luke had conversations with more than just the 12. He had access to other eyewitnesses. If you just look at some of the unique stories in Luke's gospel that the others don't include, some of those are really um, uh, the testimony of women who were part of the, the, the larger band of disciples that followed Jesus, like Susanna and Joanna and Mary Magdalene. And there's some scenes that we could only know if Jesus' mother Mary had told someone like Luke and others. There's twice in Luke's gospel, he mentions after recounting something that only Mary would have known that she had pond- or treasured those things in her heart and pondered them. It's a reminder that th- that story, even though it happened way back at the beginning of Jesus' life, was trustworthy because it was Im- embedded in her, her mind. And it also probably included others, like maybe Jesus' brothers and sisters, or even 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that 
that Jesus in his resurrected body appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, he says. So first of all, there's all these eyewitnesses whose, whose testimony was reliable. Second group was this. He says, many have already compiled narratives like the one I'm setting out to write. We, we know that the Gospel of Mark was most likely written before Luke's. 50% of uh, Mark's Gospel is found in Luke's Gospel. So much of it he drew from Mark, who wasn't an eyewitness, but was a companion of Peter, who was one of the 12, who was closest to Jesus. So there's these two groups, and then there's Luke and his work. And look at in verse three, he just drives home. He really wants us to know how thoughtful and rigorous and thorough and extensive and careful he has been in compiling this book. Look at the few things he says. First of all, he says, having followed. So this is personal investigation. This is not just him collecting a bunch of documents that were out there and taping them all together and submitting them. But no, he had followed. He had personally researched these things. He'd spent time gathering information from many, many people. And he says, having followed for some time past, which could either mean he had been investigating for a long time, or it could mean he had been investigating way back to even the earliest days of Jesus' life, which I think is likely given that when we read Luke's gospel, he begins even before Jesus is born with the angelic announcements of John, his forerunner, and then the, the announcements to, to, to Mary about Jesus' conception. So I think he means that he had, um, his investigation had tried to get as far back in Jesus' life as possible to include as much of it as he could get uh, evidence for, of. And then he says he's followed all things, which I, I think isn't redundant with what we just said. I think he means uh, he considered all available evidence. He turned over every stone. He tried to hear from any possible source of information about Jesus that he could get. And he says he followed it closely. I think that it speaks to the quality of his work and the integrity with which he approached it. He understood that if, if he allowed false information about Jesus to come in, it would violate and, and it would undermine the, the, the truthfulness of the message and, and create doubt and, and move people away from it. So he's followed these things closely. It's, it's a word about carefully. And he says he's done all this to give an orderly account. <clears throat> he's ordered these things. Generally speaking, it's chronological. I mean, it begins before Jesus is born and it starts with the, these narratives about his birth and his infancy and a, a little glimpse of his childhood. And then it moves into his ministry and, and it moves mostly chronologically, although there are a few sections that don't seem to follow exactly chronologically, but generally. But he also orders it sort of geographically. He begins with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. <clears throat> and his growing up in Nazareth, but his beginning of his ministry in Galilee and it moving to Samaria, but then finally back to Jerusalem where it's all gonna come to a crescendo at the cross. And then the book of Acts moves from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's ordered these things very intentionally to help us understand not just what God accomplished, but where it's all headed. So why does Luke front load all of this prologue before he just gets into the story. Well, I think it's because of verse four. It's because of his purpose in writing it. 
He's not looking just for a book deal. (laughs) This is motivated by ministry. Why did he write this? He says, so that you may have certainty. That's why he really wants us to know, I have done this carefully and thoughtfully and rigorously. And to the best of my knowledge, everything I'm presenting to you really happened. Because I want you to have certainty, he says. Who's the you? He says, you, most excellent Theophilus. I'm just going to say, we don't know who this guy was. The Bible says nothing about him other than this sentence right here. But the title most excellent probably implies he was important. He was a man of some sort of high rank or official status. And we're told that he's been taught some things about Jesus. So we don't know if he's a believer or not. At the time that Luke presented this to him, maybe he was a new believer. He had been catechized. He had learned some things about Jesus and professed faith. But, or maybe he was an inquirer and he was curious and he was interested. And Luke wanted him to, to, to seal the deal, to trust his life to Jesus. But either way, what I want us to see here is Luke sees this guy Theophilus and sees where he stands in relationship to Jesus and he wants to help Theophilus move closer toward Jesus in faith and obedience. And I think it's doubtful that he wrote this entire massive work for one dude. (laughs) I think his intention probably was in giving this account this narrative to this important man, Theophilus, that he, in his certainty and his faith, would then share that with others and he would pass it along. And the way that Luke wanted to help Theophilus move forward toward Christ, toward maturity in Christ, was this, by growing in his certainty, in his confidence in Jesus confidence that all these things he'd been taught that are pretty staggering when you look at them. Jesus walked out of a grave that he was buried in. He wanted Theophilus to have the certainty in these things. The kind of certainty that the apostle John wanted his readers to have in 1 John. Listen to this from the beginning of John's letter, 1 John, who was an eyewitness. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. That means touchable, seeable, visible. We've seen it. And we testify and proclaim to you this eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. It's the same intention Luke has with Theophilus. Because certainty isn't the end game. It's not just that we would all know for sure and that's it. No, Luke wants certainty so that that certainty would then lead to faith, devotion, and worship. And fellowship with all those who share that faith, love, and worship. Right? And if you have certainty that these things were accomplished then here's the great news for us this morning. We can have certainty about all the things God said those things have accomplished. In other words, if we can be certain about what went down when Jesus came, we can be certain about all the things God says Jesus offers us now. We can be certain that if we are in Christ, we have peace with God that's unshakable. 
that his forgiveness is real and permanent because Jesus is real and permanent. And what he did about our sin happened and can't be undone. If we have certainty about the things that happened in the gospel of Luke, we can be certain that death will not have the last laugh. That Doris, you will see Wally again soon. And we will see those in Christ who we have lost and love soon. The certainty about these things is so that we can have certainty about these things that we face in the promises God has made to us. And we can have certainty that one day every sin and injustice that isn't repented of and forgiven because of Jesus' blood will have to face Jesus as the righteous judge. And that is an assuring word in our day, isn't it? As daily we watch so many horrific and evil things happen in our world. To know, on one hand, God's grace is massive enough to forgive the, repent, the sincere, repentant um, faith of anyone, no matter how wicked. And yet, if not, it will not be swept away. Because these things in Luke's gospel certainly happened, God will certainly judge one day and we can rest assured in it. And we can leave vengeance to God. So two questions as we finish this morning struck me. For, the first is just this, are you a Theophilus? Maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not. Maybe you're just checking this out. Maybe you're watching today online because somehow our YouTube live stream got bumped today and, and it came up in your feed and you clicked on it. But maybe you've been taught some things about Jesus or maybe you've professed a faith in Jesus, but you're still not sure about some things. Maybe some of the things that Jesus taught are still unsettling to you and you're not quite sure if you take all of it. I like these things Jesus said, but I don't know about these things. That sort of gets into my business. Maybe some of the claims that Jesus made about himself just seem a bit too far-fetched to you and you're ready to receive him maybe as a wise teacher or a moral um, instructor, but not as the son of God eternal who's coming back again to judge the living and the dead. Maybe some of the things that are told about Jesus in the gospels just seem too unbelievable to believe it really happened. Well, can I encourage you? to stick with us. This series is going to be wonderful. And let us introduce you or reintroduce you to Jesus. I was reminded this week of, of a man named Nabil Qureshi, who I read his testimony a few years ago, which is called uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's excellent. You should read it. He, 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 the Lord took him home a few years ago with cancer. But um, as a believer, he summarized his testimony like this. He says, I left Islam because I studied Muhammad's life. I accepted the gospel because I studied Jesus' life. Studying Jesus' life in the gospels, I believe, and Nabil believed, holds up to scrutiny. And in the end, displays um, and reveals the glory of God himself. And I have complete faith that if you study the life of Jesus, uh, the Lord might draw you to himself and you might, like him, come to say, I believed in the gospel because I studied Jesus' life. 
Can I even encourage you to find someone else here at Grace or another believer in your life uh, and invite them to come alongside you and have good conversations from week to week after we're preaching through the Gospel of Luke and ask good questions and really study. Second question is this, is do you have a Theophilus? I love that the author of this book that is largely about how Jesus came and he called disciples to himself and he taught them and he, and he traveled with them and he trained them so that when he ascended, they would take the baton and they would take this good news and make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples that the author of this book is actually demonstrating for us that very thing as he begins his gospel. Think about what the prologue shows us. It shows us that Luke's writing this was motivated by the same disciple-making burden and impulse that we're all to have. He had received incredible things from these eyewitnesses and he had come to believe them and they'd transformed his life and he'd taken it on the road with Paul and he'd seen the transformational power of the gospel and he wanted to do something to participate and share that and pass it along with Theophilus and, and others a world of others, as it turns out. And so I want to ask you, do you share Luke's burden this morning? Do you want to make Jesus unignorable to those who know you in your life? Do you have a Theophilus? Do you know someone? Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's someone who works in your department. Or a student in, one of your, in some of your classes. If you're a parent, it's your, your children who are learning things this morning about Jesus and your task to come alongside and help them understand and, know, and believe with greater certainty that these things are true. Who has God put you in proximity to that you can engage with the good news of, the, of Jesus, of the gospel? If no one comes to your mind right now, which may be the case for any number of reasons, doesn't have to be because you're, you lack courage, but maybe the spheres of your life are all generally filled with believers. And you're going to need to think about, how do I meet people who don't know this news? But I want to encourage you and me and us this morning, as we study the gospel of Luke and learn about more about Jesus again, to be praying, Lord, who would you have me, who are you calling me to engage with to help know with certainty that these things are true? I'm really looking forward to this study here together with you all.